Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. I'm Charlotte Kilroy, King's Counsel, and I'm going to be talking about exceptionalism and the law. In this country, amid the clash of arms, the laws are not silent. They may be changed, but they speak the same language in war as in peace. No prizes for identifying this. It was Liversidge and Anderson in 1941. Lord Atkin. It was a celebrated dissent, not only from the judgments of the four other law lords, but also from all the judges of the Court of Appeal and below. He was a lone voice and it was a great controversy. He was heavily criticised by his fellow law lords, by politicians and by parts of the press at the time. The senior law lord, Lord Maugham, even wrote a letter to the Times to criticise one aspect of what he had said. But it is now accepted. He was right and they were wrong. Does this case have any relevance for us now? I believe so. It's at the heart of our topic, exceptionalism in immigration and terror legislation. That is, exceptional measures departing from usual legal standards, often applied to limited groups of individuals. Liversidge and Anderson is an illustration of the two faces of exceptionalism. The first face is the legislation itself. The legislation in Liversidge and Anderson was the Emergency Powers Defence Act 1939. Extraordinary powers were conferred on the Home Secretary in extraordinary times, the onset of war. The power was to make defence regulations for the detention of persons whose detention appears to the Secretary of State to be expedient in the interests of the public safety or the defence of the realm. Regulation 18B of the defence regulations was initially drafted so as to give the Home Secretary the power to detain individuals where he was satisfied it is necessary to do so. In other words, an extraordinarily wide discretion. But it was amended after political pressure in Parliament and the words satisfied that were replaced with if the Secretary of State has reasonable cause to believe in other words, the broad power to detain on grounds of prejudice to public safety or defence of the realm was now bounded by a condition, having reasonable cause to believe. So Parliament had done its bit to impose limits on an otherwise almost limitless discretion. The stage was set for the second face of exceptionalism, the courts. In a democracy governed by the rule of law, the courts have a critical part to play. When, to quote Lord Bingham in his lecture about this case, exceptional circumstances appear to call for exceptional remedies. And it seems that this is 
no time for legal niceties. And there is a temptation to conclude that the safety of the people is the supreme law. Then it is the courts who are called upon to assert older, nobler, more enduring values, the right of the individual against the state, the duty to govern in accordance with law, the role of the courts as guarantor of legality and individual right, the priceless gift, subject only to constraints by law established, of individual freedom. In 1941, in the middle of the war, the House of Lords did not heed this call. Mr. Liversidge, real name Jack Perlswig, was detained on the grounds of hostile associations. In his action for false imprisonment, the question was, when the statute said an individual may be detained if the Home Secretary has reasonable cause to believe, did his belief have to be subjective or objective? If it had to be objective, the court would order the reasons for the detention to be produced and assess whether the condition was met. If it was subjective, the court would not. As Lord Acton explained in his excoriating judgment, Regulation 18b had unquestionably imposed an objective test, using language universally used for that purpose in the context of detention powers more generally, and in the defence regulations themselves but the remainder of the House of Lords reasoned the opposite. They butchered the natural meaning of the words. As Lord Atkins said, if A has a broken ankle does not mean and cannot mean if A thinks that he has a broken ankle. If A has a right of way does not mean and cannot mean if A thinks that he has a right of way. Similarly, if the Secretary of State has reasonable cause to believe, does not mean if the Secretary of State thinks he has reasonable cause to believe. Why did the House of Lords do it? Well, of course, the war. As Lord Wright explained, if extraordinary powers are here given, they are given because the emergency is extraordinary and are limited to the period of the emergency. Their Lordships reasoned that the special context of the regulations, the particular knowledge and status of the Secretary of State, and the confidentiality of the information on which the detention was based, all militated in favour of the unusual construction. They considered that a judge cannot possibly have the full information on which the Minister has acted, or appreciate the full importance in the national interest of what the information discloses. Consequently, said Lord Wright, if the Home Secretary has reasonable cause to believe, that is, believes that he has in his own mind what he thinks is reasonable cause, if that is his mental state, the duty to act in the national interest attaches. That is a higher duty than the duty to regard the liberty of the subject. No wonder Lord Atkin compared this approach to Humpty Dumpty, who said, when I use a word, 
It means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And no wonder he said that. I view with apprehension the attitude of judges who on a mere question of construction, when face to face with claims involving the liberty of the subject, show themselves more executive minded than the executive. As he reminded the rest of the court, it has always been one of the pillars of freedom, one of the principles of liberty for which on recent authority we are now fighting, that the judges are no respecters of persons and stand between the subject and any attempted encroachments on his liberty by the executive, alert to see that any coercive action is justified in law. It's no accident Lord Bingham chose to speak about Liversidge and Anderson to the American Bar Association in 2007, nearly 70 years later. The House of Lords over which he had presided as senior law lord had by then been called on to consider another exceptional legislative measure adopted in exceptional times, the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act 2001, the ATCSA, adopted in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent War on Terror. As Lord Bingham later explained in his book, The Rule of Law, the advent of serious terrorist violence carried out by those willing to die in the cause of killing others, tests adherence to the rule of law to the utmost. For states, as is their duty, strain to protect their people against the consequences of such violence, and the strong temptation exists to cross the boundary which separates the lawful from the unlawful. Parliament acceded to that temptation with the ATCSA, it provided for the indefinite detention without charge or trial of non-nationals suspected of international terrorism who could not be deported, derogating from Article 5 of the European Convention of Human Rights while doing so. Importantly, however, British nationals were not liable to detention under the ATCSA, even though there were among them those who undoubtedly posed equivalent risk. In a case which became known as the Belmarsh case, a panel of judges of the House of Lords, led by Lord Bingham, duly considered the legality of the ATCSA. The issue was whether the derogation from Article 5, ECHR, was justified and proportionate, and thus whether it was compatible with the European Convention. This House of Lords did heed Lord Atkins' call to assert the right of the individual against the state. They too were considering indefinite detention, and they too were invited by the Home Secretary to step back from their role as guardians of liberty. The Attorney General submitted, as is recorded in paragraph 37 of Lord Bingham's judgment, it was for Parliament and the Executive to assess the threat facing the nation and it was for those bodies and not the courts to judge the response necessary to protect the security of the public. These were matters of a political character calling for an exercise of political and not judicial judgment. Matters of the kind in issue here fall within the discretionary area of judgment properly belonging to the democratic organs of the state. It was not for the courts to usurp authority 
properly belonging elsewhere. Lord Bingham's response in the judgment was as follows. Even in a terrorist situation, judicial control of interferences by the executive with the individual right to liberty is an essential feature of the guarantee embodied in Article 5.3, which is intended to minimize the risk of arbitrariness and to ensure the rule of law. In times of distress, the shield of military necessity and national security must not be used to protect governmental actions from close scrutiny, and the function of independent judges charged to interpret and apply the law is universally recognized as a cardinal feature of the modern democratic state, a cornerstone of the rule of law itself. The Attorney General is fully entitled to insist on the proper limits of judicial authority, but he is wrong to stigmatize judicial decision-making as in some way undemocratic. Having rejected the argument that, on grounds of deference, it was not the court's place to judge the proportionality of the derogation order, the House of Lords found that it was disproportionate, highlighting that perversely it permitted equally dangerous British nationals to walk free and allowed similarly dangerous non-nationals who could be deported to leave the UK free to conduct their attacks from abroad. The derogation order was quashed and Section 23 ATCSA was declared incompatible with Article 5 and 14 of the European Convention. The Belmarsh case is a striking example of the court's role in curbing exceptionalism. And it also highlights the greater ease with which legal standards are diluted if not applied to the population as a whole. Justice Jackson of the US Supreme Court accordingly said this in a case in 1949. Nothing opens the door to arbitrary actions so effectively as to allow officials to pick and choose only a few to whom they will apply legislation and thus to escape the political retribution that might be visited upon them if larger numbers were affected. Courts can take no better measure to assure that laws will be just than to require that laws be equal in operation. Fast forward to the present day. The war on terror has mutated, but not abated. In recent times, ISIS has occupied the attentions of legislators. The new tool of choice for the executive is deprivation of citizenship for those with dual nationality, exercised while they are out of the country so they can never return. Notoriously, a young girl named Shamima Begum trafficked to Syria to become an ISIS bride at the age of 15, had her citizenship stripped without notice a few years later when she was 19 and by then detained in a camp in Syria. Her circumstances were dire. Two of her children had already died and her third did shortly thereafter. She was entitled to an appeal against that decision to the Special Immigration Appeals Commission but her conditions of detention were so poor and her ability to communicate with her lawyers so limited that she could not fairly exercise that right. The Court of Appeal found the Home Secretary should have granted her leave to enter the UK to conduct that appeal, but the Supreme Court overturned that decision. 
The Home Secretary was entitled to refuse leave to enter on national security grounds. The right to a fair and effective appeal was not, as Lord Reid put it, a trump card. The full appeal did not entitle the Special Immigration Appeals Commission to substitute its own assessment of the risk to national security posed by Ms Begum for the assessment of the Home Secretary. On national security, the deference owed to the Home Secretary was such that even on appeal, it could only be displaced on what amounted to ordinary judicial review principles. The Supreme Court's reasoning was largely based on an analysis of various appeal rights within and without the immigration context. But the court did not examine the role of appeal rights within the immigration decision-making system as a whole. Appeal rights have always had a special function in the asylum system, allowing shortcuts in the decision-making process which would, in the absence of a full appeal, render the underlying decision unfair or unlawful. That is why the Home Secretary believed she could strip individual citizenship based on minimal evidence and with no notice or opportunity to make representations, relying on their ability to engage later in the process and her own ability to supplement the evidence relating to national security. The impact of the Supreme Court's judgment in Begum on both the appeal process and the decision-making process is still being explored in the Special Immigration Appeals Commission and the Court of Appeal with increasingly labyrinthine results. It is at least possible that another trip to the Supreme Court will be required to try and sort the problems out. But in the meantime, Ms Begum and many others like her have had neither a fair decision to deprive them of their citizenship, nor a fair appeal, and have been languishing for years, often with children, in squalid and dangerous camps in Syria or Iraq, exposed to a multitude of risks and degradations. It does unfortunately feel as if exceptionalism has prevailed. They are neither suspected Nazis, nor suspected terrorists, but some people consider them an invasion. They are, of course, asylum seekers and refugees. Exceptional measures have been applied to this group for years, but the political capital now being expended on them is unprecedented. Cue the Rwanda scheme, the Nationality and Borders Act 2022, and now the Illegal Migration Act 2023 each more savage than the last. The aim is to remove the ability of genuine refugees to obtain leave in the UK if they have arrived illegally, which for most is the only way to get here, and thereby to deter refugees from fleeing to the UK in the first place. Although there are a large number of extremely concerning aspects of these acts, the fact remains that when invited to pass them, Parliament was repeatedly assured that the government take their international obligations, including under the ECHR, very seriously, and there is nothing in the bill that requires any act or omission that conflicts with UK international obligations. This is where the courts will come in. As we've seen, in times of national stress or turmoil, 
the executive will frequently resort to exceptional legislative measures which threaten the fundamental rights of small and unpopular minorities. We can expect nothing less. The role the courts play in these circumstances is clear. Upholding the rule of law involves resisting the siren calls, and as Lord Atkin put it, standing between the subject and any attempted encroachments on his liberty by the executive, alert to see that any coercive action is justified in law. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.